0: Hello and welcome back to The Director's Diary, this is chapter 11, all about contracts, all about finding uh, pitfalls and my personal experience of contracts and negotiation. Um, I hope you find it useful. Let's get straight into the podcast. So without further ado, this is The Director's Diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary, so if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. So, contracts. Um... I'm going to speak a little bit about my personal experience of contracts and, um, and yeah, my my advice from what I've learned so far. This is by no means the the right way of doing it. It's just um, hopefully a couple of tactics that that help you if you're engaging in uh, commissions or um, if you're a company contracting other freelancers um, or all of the above. The experience of Contracts is usually, um, I think, from m- many artists as the little fish. Um, and I guess from our point of view as Riptide, we're only ever the big fish um, when uh, when we're contracting freelancers to do work. Um, so that's something to say, is that it's always probably from um, the underhanded point of view. Um, so when, when artists get given contracts that is exactly it. They're given contracts. There's no kind of, um, artists don't, when they're commissioned, they don't come up with the contracts, do they? So it's, um, I think we have to talk about the culture of the arts and, um, and maybe try and rebalance where the power lies. The first thing in my diary, This week is um, about starting the negotiation and um, this was kind of the biggest hurdle and biggest challenge for me when I was starting out because I didn't know where to begin or what approaches to take. Um, So from my personal experience, it's really important to get a first conversation in with whoever you're making a project with. So whether that is someone who's going to be part of your team or a a co-commissioner or um, a festival or whatever it is. And that first conversation should outline high-level thinking. So I think you should both say what you want to get out of the project, whether there is any must-haves for any of you. Um, but what I love about these high-level conversations is it allows you to pitch um, and also make yourself look good. Um, you can say things like, we want to make sure your festival is a success. Um we want to drive new audiences to you. The, those kind of things that um, allow you to come across well and, and make sure that the other side knows that you're in it for them as much as for yourself. The next stage is to get it onto paper, and this is such a crucial point to, to get something in writing. What I like to do is um, create a terms sheet or a proposal. Kind of in between the stages of these first conversations and a contract, what this does is it outlines in writing what um, what you both want and what um, and it sets out quite clearly what uh, the the conversation that you've had is. This is not legally binding, but it's psychologically binding. I think it moves the conversation onto concrete elements and and also makes up the contract in some form. So you can use this term sheet to devise a contract together. This hopefully rebalances the power. So if you're delivering this term sheet or proposal, some of your terms and things you're putting in the proposal actually end up in the contract, rather than just being given a contract from one side and saying that's it. Having it written as well also avoids any confusion of what uh, both sides think has been said in that conversation. So... Sometimes you can have a kind of, well, I thought we were signing up for this kind of thing. Just to point out that we all have bias towards our own negotiations. We all have bias towards ourselves. So even if the conversations we're having seem to be pointing in one way, chances are they are thinking it in a slightly different angle and might be um, embellishing some parts of the conversation. The second point in my diary, after you've started and opened the negotiations for your contract or the project that you're working on, is about listening. And this is super important. And I think people forget to do this because in a negotiation, you want to drive home your points and you really want to secure your end of the bargain, whatever that means for you. For me, it's about active listening. So this is about understanding where the other side is coming from and what they might want from the contract. For me, listening is not just waiting for your turn to speak, which I think it is for most people. Listening is an active thing that makes you understand the side that you're speaking to and especially when you don't agree on something, our first reaction can be to think of all the reasons why they're wrong or it can be to to formulate a comeback as quick as possible. It's Kwame Christian who says, who's a negotiation lawyer, who says that there is a There should be a 70-30 split on any negotiation. On any good negotiator, you should have 70% listening and 30% speaking. And this is what he calls an information asymmetry. It gives you an insight into the other person. It also gives you more information from them than you are giving out. So there's a power in that. It also comes back to things like um, leadership and Simon Sinek's Leaders eat last. That whole idea that a leader speaks last before his whole team. You can go around the room and everyone has a chance to pitch in. And then the leader of the room summarises and kind of picks out the things that he or she wants to, to shed light on. There's power in speaking last, I think. in negotiation is no different. The next point in my diary is just a phrase. It says... The contract is not a job offer. And this is something I've learned from... It's taken me a while, actually, to have the confidence to negotiate. Um, To have the courage to negotiate a contract is something that artists very rarely have, I think, in my experience. Freelancers are often in the position where they get given a contract and they have to... They feel like they have to say yes or no. And it comes back to this culture of freelancers in the arts being given contracts... And when do freelancers ever draft their own contracts for the role? So I'm really interested in this conversation of how can we rebalance the power and give some level of, of power to freelancers. One of the positives about being a freelancer, and there are many negatives, but one of the positives is that we can, if we're brave enough, dictate our own terms of working. This never happens in the public sector and rarely happens in the private sector. And what it allows us to do is make the contract reflect our own values. So what I would suggest doing when you're negotiating a contract is really ask yourself, what are we wanting to get out of this? What matters to you? Is it about your notice period that is on there? So do you ask for a less, lesser notice period to allow you to be more flexible or do you ask for a longer notice period to allow you to have more stability and to know that you're in that job for a while? Is it about IP and is it about the protection of that? I would argue that every contract an artist science needs to have an IP clause in there um, to protect your intellectual property so that uh, we've had it before in the past where commissioners have put IP clauses to say that they own everything that they're commissioning, which I think is absolutely absurd. I think the IP should, um, of course, be given to the people who are making the art. But some people don't have IP clauses, and that's a dispute, so making sure that that's covered is really important. Maybe what matters to you is the payment schedule and structure and, and whether that is front-loaded or back-loaded. So are you getting all of your money right at the end, which might uh, create a cash flow problem for some artists? Or can you negotiate and say, actually, can we actually get more than that figure closer to the start date? Are you paid half when you sign the contract and half when you close? That's something that we do at Riptide so that we allow um, artists to manage their own cash flow better. Is it about royalties or um, making sure that if a company uses your work again that you're paid for it or credited? This, This is really important for writers, I think, and I would encourage any writer to have a royalty clause in their contracts so that if, if they're using any material outside of the project timeline, that you get credited and paid for that. And there are there are good uh, there are good guidelines on ITC and equity that kind of go through what a writer should be paid in terms of royalties. I would definitely um, push any writer to go and look at those. But that having those um, terms written into your contract allows you to feel secure. It also, I think, is a reflection on the company or the person who is contracting you, whether they are allowing those contracts into uh, those clauses into your contract. So are they looking after you as a freelancer? And I think that says a lot about the culture that that company or commissioning body has. The next thing in my diary is something that's quite topical at the moment. We're still in lockdown And it's about force majeure. And I've looked at some of the past contracts that we've signed, and very rarely are contracts that have been given to us, very rarely do they include force majeure. Some of them say that they are, um, there's a clause, for example, some of the clauses that we've had in the past say that this agreement is governed by English law. And I think there's a misinterpretation really by, by some commissioners to say that something is governed by English law does not include force majeure. So force majeure is um, where an act of God or uh, natural disaster prevents the contract from being completed. And there's a kind of uh, shared understanding that if something like that happens, you kind of take you cut your losses and you kind of the project doesn't go on. But to say that the English law covers force majeure is false. So you've got to really, I would advise anyone to have a force majeure uh, clause in that contract. What we're seeing now in the COVID-19 environment is a lot of contracts coming under scrutiny and a lot of contracts are being disputed on this specific clause, this force majeure clause. Something I've learned from... One of our projects recently being postponed is the following. So I just uh, I've had conversations with contractual lawyers about how uh, legally how contracts can change and what people may be filing under if it's not force majeure. So when we agree and sign a contract, that becomes legally binding between us as the company and whoever's. Uh, contracting us if we both agree then to change that contract in some way that means to postpone the event or to edit any terms any payment terms or to um edit anything if we both agree on that that then becomes and this is legal jargon it becomes varied it's still binding but it's a new contract so if both um parties agree to postpone an event for example for covid19 then there becomes um, a a new contract so that you can kind of do away with the old one. Or you can change certain terms on it. So, for example, it might just be dates that you're changing. So if you're just postponing an event, it may just be dates and the the payment schedule might stay the same. But this becomes a new binding contract. For COVID-19, if there was no force majeure clause in there, people can claim frustration. So, just to give you a bit of context on frustration in English law, the last time it was used was in 1903, and the case was Henry versus Crell. I think they're called the Coronation cases, actually. But one of them is Henry versus Crell, and this was um, the backstory of this is that this uh, that Henry, uh, which is a last name by the way, um, rented a flat to use a balcony to watch Edward the coronation pass through London, and. The coronation was postponed due to the king being ill by a day or so, I think. And uh, Henry claimed that the money that he put down for the rent should be... He shouldn't have to pay the full amount because uh, the thing never happened and um, why we don't want to sit on a balcony if it wasn't for that purpose. And the judge ruled that, yes, Henry should get his money back. And and that was under the term frustration. The, the whole event was frustrated... And um, the person who paid the money didn't get what they asked for. So a lot of uh, companies may be, um, if they haven't got a force majeure, they may be going down that frustrated line. The contractual lawyer that I spoke to said that that will be used, no doubt. Um, probably because the government unhelpfully has not banned things like festivals. or not, He hasn't banned... Um theater event it's an advisory guidance, so so that means that uh people can't claim against big insurers, I think, so a little bit unhelpful, but we might be seeing a lot more of the frustration clause coming in so just to summarize what that is, the kind of top tips of kind of contract law there's definitely put in a force majeure clause into any contract I mean. COVID-19 has shown that, you know, anything can happen and, and no clause is too silly to put in um, and that, yes, we can be affected by a global pandemic in a few months. The second thing is for me is to include a schedule written into the contract. So that is a list of dates of delivery that's in expected and the dates of specific dates of payment And I really don't like signing contracts that say within seven days of the end of the project or um, on signature of the contract. I like or I prefer those having concrete dates. So um, we've had it in the past where we've signed a contract and it's it's had that kind of on signature of contract clause for the first instalment and it even though we've sent it off, it's taken the other party a lot longer to sign that contract and therefore our payments have been delayed through no fault of our own, which is really frustrating and can cause massive cash flow problems actually with us owing, either us owing money to freelancers or having just a really horrible cash flow problem. Often me personally paying freelancers and then having to recoup the money myself actually. The other thing is about having the contract in place before the work begins. And that I think this is super, super important. I would say for any freelancer, before you start on any piece of work, whether that be a poster, a design, you know, even if it's a really small design thing, like a poster, even if it's initial sketches or something that you can re- really like knock out in an afternoon, don't start the work until you've got a contract. It's really important, I think. It's something that I've learned as a freelancer. Make sure you're covered. So just to summarise what this chapter is about, I think it's about giving freelancers the confidence that the contract is not the job offer, that the contract is something that is malleable and it's, it's uh, the beginning of a negotiation. For some people, it's, they see the dotted line and it's the contract is a yes or no do you accept these terms or not? And, and often if you're brave enough to ask to amend clauses and to have um, clauses written in that reflect your values, clauses that help you as a freelancer, for example, the payment schedules and that kind of thing, that it can really help you. And also you get a sense of who you're working with as well. If they're open to such things, it might prove to be a better working relationship. I think that in itself I was never told as a recent graduate and I fell into pitfalls of signing contracts that I didn't really like the look of because I didn't want to say no to the money or I didn't want to say no to the opportunity. There are also examples that I've worked without a contract and been burnt before. So I think to have that knowledge of how to negotiate, I think something that's really worked well for me in the past is is asking how and what questions what, rather than why questions on things that I either disagreed with or didn't understand. So questions like how do we move forward with this or how can I ensure that I am uh, don't have a cash flow problem. And offering, if you're asking for advice for the, other, for the other side, I think more often than not, they see things from your point of view. So you go, actually, yeah, we, we do we do understand that we can pay this and this and this, that we can pay this this then, if that helps you. So that how, rather than saying, why haven't you included the money up front, how can we ensure that the freelancers we work with don't have a cash flow problem? They're, they're going to be spending money on the pro- project. How can we how can we do that when you're only paying us 10% up front? Those kind of questions flip the negotiation round onto the person who who then has to come up with the answers another really great strategy, and I think you've got to be careful with this one but but a great strategy for me is the art of playing dumb. you've got to be careful with this, but sometimes you can purposely play dumb, and I've done this with kind of calculations and um and maths, and you can ask if you play dumb you you're you're then asking the other person to really. Dumb down their processes and the way that they got to that um, summary of of costs, for example. That also gives you a lot more information about how someone's come to that that figure. And it also allows you to then negotiate on those specific terms or those specific things. It's a tricky one because you don't want to come across as stupid all of the time. But acting dumb does allow the other person to give you much more information and allows you then to come back and uh yeah negotiate the the minute things rather than the big figure it says well if you're doing that can't you do that thing for less thank you so much for listening i hope that was helpful um it's something that i've learned over the last couple of months um and yeah some of this is taken years actually to to come to terms with it's by no by no means the the absolute playbook of how to do contracts but it's hopefully some of the things are interesting and and might spark some sort of change if you're a freelancer or a small company um hope that helps i'm going to continue to do this throughout lockdown um and we've got an exciting couple of remote um conversations in the in the pipeline so thank you very much and stay safe